Welcome to CPP Chat, an analysis of what's going on in the world of C++, chatting with guests from the community. But before we start looking for this week's bugs, John has some disclaiming to do. Thank you, Phil. In this age of digital recording, audio, video, and session file usage and storage have become major issues for studios and clients. Due to the unreliable nature of this digital world, CPP Chat Studios LLC will not guarantee the safe use or storage of digital audio files. We strive to do our best with file manipulation and storage, but there are many things out of our control. For example, there are often bugs in operating systems and attendant software, hardware components that suddenly become defective in hard drive power supplies and IC boards, glitches in the operation of complex computer functions, etc., that cause from time to time, losses in data. Although such losses are infrequent, CPP Chat Studios LLC accepts no liability for the usage or storage of any data or files. So, welcome everyone. Uh, welcome, Yuri. We uh, we have a guest today from uh, PVC Studios, and we're going to talk about that. But I f think first we're going to do some news, right? Yeah, um, I think last time we, we said on the subject of conferences, we usually do a conference roundup, we said the news was everything is cancelled. Uh, which, for the first approximation, that was true. Uh, interestingly, this week, um, there is a bit more movement going on. So um, I'll let you talk about CPPCon in a moment, John, but uh, also meeting C++ just announced that their call for speakers is open. They are planning a physical event, but obviously, uh, even uh, by November, we're still not sure what the situation is going to be. So Jens is prepared for moving uh, that either partially or maybe even fully online, uh, as the situation becomes clearer. Uh, so he's, he's full steam ahead preparing for that at the moment. Uh, ACCU Belfast, also in the autumn, the fall, uh, has been cancelled now. And C++ Russia, they'd moved their physical event from April to June, I think, originally. They've now announced that the June event is going to be online. So I think that might be the first major C++ conference to go fully online. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. And then, uh, John, you've got um, CPPCon. Right. Um, so CPPCon, we've uh, opened our, our uh, call for submissions. And one of the things that we announced about that is that we have changed our format and we're going from having 60-minute standard sessions to 75-minute. And by the way, our plenaries have always been 90-minute. But what we're doing is we're going from, we used to have five sessions a day, which included a 90-minute plenary every day and four uh, hour-long sessions. And we're now going to have only uh, three sessions and they're going to be 75-minute sessions. So it's it's pretty significant change. Um, and part of the reason is that a lot of speakers ask for a longer time. I don't feel you've spoken at a number of different conferences. I assume you've done hour-long talks. I assume you've done 90-minute talks. I assume you've done 75-minute talks. What are your thoughts on those? I think you're muted, Phil. I'm still muted. We'll assume Phil said something brilliant about uh, talk lengths, and we'll let him worry about his audio systems. Anyway, the point is we had gotten some, some feedback from speakers but I think what was probably more compelling was that we've got a lot of feedback from attendees in our surveys. And the single biggest negative factor that um, attendees had identified, and I don't want to make it sound like there were lots of negatives. Most attendees' surveys are great. They're fun to read. But one of the things that, that was the most thing to come up was 
speakers talking too fast. Now, part of that's just nervousness. We're not professional presenters. We're professional coders. Um, but speaking too fast and trying to present too much material. And I understand this. I'm completely in touch with this. You know, when I do training, I get to talk for multiple days. And then when I try to say something in an hour, it turns out, wow, that's 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 a little a little more stressful than you think. So you talk really fast, you can get all these points covered, and then you feel good at the end if you've covered everything. But the problem is, you, yes, you got over everything, but the audience didn't follow what you were talking about because you were talking too fast. And so that's that's what we're trying to address. So by, I think, going from 60 minutes to 75 minutes, you know, one of the things that I've had explained to me about people who have spoken at C++ Now, which is a 90-minute for every session, and they come to CBBCon, and they feel like you spend the first 45 minutes setting up the problem, getting people to understand what you're talking about and get the context. And then just about the time you're ready to get into the real meat and you get into the really good stuff, that's about the time you have to say, okay, well, we probably ought to leave some time for questions. And so that's that's the challenge. Um, it turns out that... that um, 60 minutes is not really the sweet spot. So we're hoping that 75 minutes works better. So that's what we've done. Um, that's the that's the big news. Uh, the other news, of course, is just that, yes, uh, the call for, call for submissions is open. Um, are you with us again, Phil? Uh, no. Doesn't look like he is. Okay. All right. Um, Actually, that time I was muted. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cable okay. from my microphone fell out previously. Did I did I tell you the disclaimer? This is this is one of those complicated components that can fail mysteriously at any time, and so. Uh... <laughs> oh, oh yeah, happens all the time. Oh, by the way, yeah, about uh, those. Uh, I just want to add my two cents. Um, I've seen a couple of people who were given like an hour uh, timeline for that talk and they finished like in half an hour and it, uh, but it was like a machine gun speaking yeah quickly uh, just dash through the slides and you know it wasn't pretty yes well the more you practice the more relaxed you are doing it and the more relaxed you are the better able you'll focus on the communication instead of the actual getting through it of it but I did ask you the question, Phil, and I could I was kind of curious if, because uh, I couldn't hear what you were saying, but it looked like you were saying something terribly interesting. Oh, I was. It was really interesting. Um, I, I got through it really quickly, and I've completely forgot what it was. <laughs> uh, no, I was going to say that um, yeah, I've done, um, I don't think I've done 75-minute talks. I've done plenty of 60s and 90s, and often done the same talk of the same core material uh, in multiple formats, and generally not really had to adjust the material so much, just spend less time um, sort of going in depth and uh, taking questions. They, they do say that a 90-minute talk is really a 60-minute talk with lots of time for audience participation. Ideally, yes. Right, right, right. So uh, I actually would have liked to have gone to 90 minutes, but I think that 75 is a good... Um, it is a good... And of course, for those who are terrified of the idea of filling 75 minutes, we still are offering uh, half sessions are that we didn't actually change the time for the half sessions. One of the problems we've had with half sessions is that uh, doing two half hours in an hour is a really tough transition because you have to make certain that the first speaker doesn't go over by any time at all so that they can immediately cut over to the second speaker. That's really hard to do. So what we're going to do for half sessions is we're just going to have a little bit more. Uh, we're still going to target 30 minutes for both and just have a little bit more time 
to make the transition between. And I think that's better than trying to say, well, we're going to make them, uh, you know, uh, give everybody another seven and a half minutes or something. I don't think that's going to work too well. So, so that's the idea. Um, anyway, uh, do we have other news we want to talk about or do we want to start talking to I your... think we can, we can get started. All right. So, um, Yuri works for PBS Studios, and uh, the their, uh, the product is uh, a static analyzer, and I'm fascinated by static analyzers. And uh, you want to just give us the high level? I suspect most people listening probably know what a static analyzer is, but just what what is the idea? Okay, so the basic idea. Um, everyone knows what code review is, right? So you sit at some guy's desk and you look at, through code and uh, try to figure out what's happening there, uh, maybe fix something. Um, static analyze, uh, analysis is what I like to compare it to code review. It's just automatic. Uh, of course, it, it has limitations. Uh, basically, it's a way to take your source code and feed it to the uh, to basically a compiler, a compiler's front-end, uh, which will parse it, uh, and then it will go through uh, the entire code, And but instead of generating code like uh, the binary module, like a compiler would do, a stat static analyzer will run some diagnostics on, on this code. And uh, in the end, you get an output of uh, warnings, uh, which tell you, okay, in this fragment of code, this and that happens, and that's bad, really bad. Or maybe not really bad, but yeah. Uh, the basic idea is, is that the machine looks through your code and tells you if it smells something. Right. So uh, compared to a human doing a review, the human can give you uh, good ideas about variable names, can give you good ideas about comments, and... If you have a um, a dynamic checker, then it can uh, look at at values that are changing over time. But the value of the static analyzer is it can immediately calculate all the potential paths. And so, what a what a dynamic checker may never find a leak because the particular tests you give it may not exercise that. Whereas the static analyzer can see there is a potential path that will leak. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, and that's something that a human isn't necessarily good at, although some of them might be better than others. And a, and a dynamic leak checker isn't, isn't going to find unless you go through the path that, that exercises it. Yeah, for, for a dynamic analyzer, well, they are still good and you should use them. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Yes, 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 yes. Um, but you need to prepare data for it uh, in a specific way so that your uh, buggy code um, gets executed at least once. And uh, for dynamic checkers, their weakness is that, yeah, like like you said, if, if it doesn't go there, it didn't happen. Right. So, yeah. And uh, static analysis, uh, uh, well, for code review, it's kind of an addition because... A human can tell you not only about comments or variable names, but about algorithms, for example. So you did, uh, you solved some problem like this, but it, it would be more efficient to do like a different um, way of 
uh, of coding it. Right. Uh, a static analyzer cannot tell you that. Uh, it's not really. It's not really focused on efficiency. Well, it's uh, it's kind of focused on efficiency, but it's uh, low level efficiency. It's like, okay, there's an unnecessary copy here. I see. Or yeah. So, I see. Stuff like that. Uh, You're doing things that are never used. It can see that. Uh, yeah. Uh, and um, oh, what else? Uh, you know, people are really interesting creatures because they have short attention span sometimes. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm guilty of that too. And uh, when you're looking through some code, especially if it's uh, it's like monotonous, you know, similar blocks and something. Uh, you just burn out really quickly and you stop seeing stuff. And this thing, static analysis, I mean, uh, it just doesn't care. It doesn't get bored and it doesn't get tired. It will go through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it will go through your uh, check of 25 variables in one if block and it, it won't even. Um, I don't know. It won't even go. How does the uh, um, how does the joke go? It's um, got a code review for like a thousand line function, and everyone says, "Yeah, that's fine." Yep. But you give them one line, and they'll spend you know two days arguing <laughs> over it. That's right. <laughs> uh, you know, I've seen once a code review for templates from a guy who is not really into templates. So he goes up. Looks at the code. Okay, uh, yeah, it's fine. It's good. Uh, out templates. Uh, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> uh, I'll just go. Uh, yeah, so <laughs> that was funny. So the kinds of things that it's likely to spot, certainly it can spot if there's a path where you use something that was never initialized. There can be, it can find paths where things are never properly uh, freed or released. Uh, it can find situations where you are doing something and then not doing anything with that thing. Um, yes, we have this uh, for loops uh, more specifically. Is when sometimes you can have a loop where the condition uh, of that loop doesn't do anything. So you either get an infinite loop or it just executes once. Uh, we have a rule like that. It it can do that, like it it can look at your code and find something you did something with, and you don't use it anywhere else, so you, you didn't have to do that. But it's sometimes it's kind of limited because uh, it's not easy to understand for um, for a static analyzer uh, if if you had to do it or not, because sometimes uh, you don't you just don't know what happens in a specific function. Let's say you did something, you calculated some value, and you uh, put it into a function as a parameter. Uh, but the function's body is somewhere in a different translation unit or in a, in a static library or something like that. Right. And the analyzer doesn't see it, uh, so it won't, it won't be able to tell you anything about it. Uh, usually, we just ignore that. So if you don't understand what's happening, you don't have enough information. You just you just shut up about that and don't bother the user. So, does the static analyzer? Well, I guess different ones could work differently. But the one you're you're working on, um, does it uh, does it follow the same rules of inlining from the 
point of view of the compiler. In other words, you're not trying to look at multiple translation units and dive into uh, this function you're calling and saying, well, we've looked at the function and you're passing a parameter that's not used or yeah we don't uh we don't have multiple translation units uh we uh check them one by one it's just so like it's, the compiler it's, builds it's in them. parallel yeah just yeah. like the uh, compiler and we don't have anything like a linker uh we wanted at some point to do uh an inter modular analysis but we decided it would be too heavy uh it would Pretty be ambitious. a huge performance hit uh well, even even if we managed to do that, uh, the analysis would have take uh, uh, would start taking like ages. Uh -huh. uh, it would be slow. It would be really because it doesn't uh, scale well. The more modules you have, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, surprisingly, right? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> um, well, talking about performance, how does the analyzer compare to a compiler? It's uh, it's about the same. It can take about the same time as a build, uh, minus the linking, of course. So okay. you don't have to do linking, so it's it may be faster. Okay. So um, so tell me what it. We've been talking about a kind of theoretical point of view. What in practice do people find? What kind of bugs? I, I suppose it varies somewhat between projects, but I'm sure you see. Oh, the, you know, you get reports. The first time I ran it, I found all of this. What is that? What what's the what's the most common bug that it actually does find? Uh -huh. I maybe it will sound surprising, but I, I hope not. It's copy paste. It's when, for example, you initialize a bunch of variables and you copy paste your lines of code, of course. Who doesn't do it? Yes. Uh, and you forget to change the variable name somewhere. So somehow you're you're initializing the same variable twice, or you're initializing two different variables to the same thing, and yeah. it's not because of any fancy logic or anything like that. It's just I copied all this code, and I went back, and I made all the little changes, except I missed the little change in a few places. Yeah. Uh, Today, uh, I've had a review with my uh, colleague, and we found a bug uh, that wasn't noticeable enough uh, to be found by tests. Uh, and we found it by uh, looking at the code. Uh, he forgot to change the variable name in, in two copy-pasted method calls, and each of them had like five parameters, uh, so uh, the lines were really fat, uh, the goals, I mean, mm -hmm. both for goals. Uh, yes, and uh, we found that one variable wasn't changed, so it was working incorrectly. <laughs> but that is something, but you found that by code review, not by static analysis. Uh, yeah, but, but we But it was a cut-and-paste situation uh, still. It was. Right. Uh, we didn't run it uh, before we uh, looked at the code. So... So how, and I'll tell you the story. And I, I, um, I worked for a big company that's actually famous for having lots of money, and we bought this very, very expensive uh, static analyzer. And I don't think that the people on the team 
were, I mean, this was a, a management decision. They went out and bought a static analyzer. Hey, guess what? You're getting a static analyzer. And the people <laughs> on the team were like, oh, okay. I didn't know I had lots of extra time to investigate and other stuff. But okay, if you say so, I guess I do. Um, but nobody really knew how to use it. Um, I assume it was properly installed. I don't know. But um, but it wasn't part of our regular routine. It wasn't run regularly. I do know that when it got put in, I was really curious. It's like, oh, what is it? What is it? What is the result? What is it telling us? There must be, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to close a whole bunch of bugs. And, um, it, there was, there was some interesting stuff. And I would say probably not a surprise the the things that were truly bugs tended to be small. They tended to be like, oh yeah, I guess there is a situation where this could happen. But of course, if it was happening a lot, we would have found that already. You know, I mean, it's not like we never <laughs> tested, right? Um, so I really appreciated it because when that does happen, it's going to be some user that's lost data. And, you know, so I'm always happy to get rid of bugs. But um, but there were a lot of false positives, too. And mm-hmm. and I subsequently read more about static analysis and found out that, that false positives are are kind of the bane of the static analysis existence. So is that what you found? Is that what your experience is? Uh, yes, they are a huge deal. Uh, if you're not careful, well, you, you have to be careful with your uh, diagnostic rules, how you implement them. And we constantly fight uh, false positives in our analyzer. And uh, sometimes we find... Um, uh, we find them ourselves uh, in tests. Sometimes people report them. And then we uh, um, modify our tweaks, uh, uh, tweak our rules a little bit so that they don't happen. Um, so what's the problem with the false positives? What's the issue? Because they, um, if there are many of them, uh, your log will look like uh, it's flooded with garbage and yeah i I know that uh, this problem exists in in some projects where people just don't want to check them because uh, there are too many right uh false uh errors in other words if i told you hey i found two really good bugs in your code and here's a report of 100 bugs so 98 percent of them are a waste of your time (laughs) But there's two real bugs in there. <laughs> I mean, it's still worth it. It doesn't feel like it's worth it. It feels like a waste of time. You're going to do the first 30, and you're not going to find anything at all, and you're going to say, this is just a waste of my time. Whereas, no, there's real bugs in there, too. They're just hard to find. Yeah, that's why we try to avoid them at all costs, uh, as fast as we can. Uh, I mean, fix them. Uh, and we also do stuff like, uh, you know, uh, we have three levels of certainty for warnings. Uh, level one is where we are sure, okay, that's not a false positive. Well, there is a chance it will be a false positive, but the chance is small. Mm-hmm. Uh, level two is basically, okay, uh, here are warnings, look at them, there might be false positives here. And level three is uh, go there only if you want, because the chance of garbage is high. I see. Uh, yeah, some diagnostics just uh, 
make more noise than others. Uh, so give us an nature. example. I mean, what what is, what is the kind of diagnostic and then why is it that it might actually be okay? Why might you, you know, you're, you're thinking, oh, this doesn't look right. Then it turns out, well, no, it might be. Um, well, we have a subset of rules. Um, they concern 64-bit. Well, I'll give you a little bit of history on that. Okay. Or it will be, uh, or you, you may miss the point here. Um, the PVS Studio, it started when uh, two people from... Russia decided to compile their project with a 64-bit compiler from Microsoft specifically. And they found, oh... So it was working 32-bit code, and they said, let's just compile it and see what happens. Yeah, they said, uh, okay, yeah, let's build it, uh, let, let's migrate it to 64-bits. And they found a ton of issues. And so that's where the analyzer really started, uh, they decided to write a program which will detect potential 64-bit uh, issues. And we still have those old diagnostics as a subset of all other rules. And they are noisy, oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because they like to complain about pointers and classes, uh, like a field. You have a field which is a pointer, be sure they will complain about it because they don't like it because the class size will be different uh, between architectures stuff like that so those 64-bit rules um, they we try to keep them out of sight <laughs> no way so what you're saying is if you have a field that is a pointer that gets called out I mean that doesn't sound like it's an issue to me, but but it's but they're saying it's a potential issue. Yes. Why? Because it means that your ABI would be different, right? Because if you expose this object, you were to pass this object in in a function call or something like that, then obviously it would break between sixty four and thirty two bit. Uh, well, it won't break really, but the size will be different. Uh, so if you are counting on uh, that your class has some specific size or alignment, uh, it goes out of the window. Sure, sure. Uh, also, you know, there was a really huge problem when people, uh, they did for loops and they did like a counter of unsigned int. Okay. Or something. Uh, and turns out that on 64-bit uh, machines, you you better use size t or something similar because you may run out of the counter uh bitness for that especially if you um well y you might have a big um array uh, or a data collection and if you use indexes uh which worked fine in 32 bits uh you suddenly may uh, sh uh, shoot yourself in the foot in f uh, 64 bits. Um, it's not that huge deal, really, those counters. Uh, but the fun starts when you come across legacy code when people store pointers in ints or longs or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a huge deal. Uh, I, I don't, I don't think right now. Many people run into this kind of problems because 
everyone uh, is using 64 bits, at least uh, on uh, computers, not in embedded systems. I'm, I'm yeah. not sure about about them. Uh, but back then, it was uh, early 2000s. It was a, a huge deal, and many well, storing in, uh, pointers in integers can be a problem for different reasons, of course, these days. Or as I heard, yeah. Uh, well, I mm, I'm kind of familiar with uh, Windows API. You know, I had to, and they do it all the time. Like you, you can put a pointer to the window as a long uh, variable. Yes, and they cast pointers to integers a lot. People writing OSs tend to be less interested in portability <laughs> between. Yeah. Uh, between architectures because they're writing, they know what their architecture is, right? So they make all sorts of assumptions that someone trying to write portable C++ code. When I write code, I never make an assumption about what size int is. Um, I just, and it's not just that I, I mean, I just don't know what an int is and I just don't care. And if I ever think that I care because I'm going to do something with it, I use a static assert or something like that to make certain that my code makes sense in, in, you know, if I'm making an assumption, I, I document it that way. But mm-hmm. um, what people writing OSs, they know, well, we're writing this for this particular set of chips, and we know what kind of memory layout we're going to have because they're writing an operating system, right? They're doing all those things. And so they do these really hacky tricks all the time. Um, and uh, people writing o- operating systems are not always, they don't always see eye to eye with people doing compilers because they have a different... <laughs> Literally a different worldview. I mean, the famous the famous situation where the Linux programmers um, said, "Don't ever optimize out our null checks. We put a null check in on purpose." And the language guy is going, "Well, you've already." Uh, this is famous, and it's because the language people have a different way of looking at things than the than the operating system people do. Because the language people follow the standard, whereas the operating system people know what the hardware actually is, and they know which which assumptions they can make that are safe and which assumptions they can't make. Um, oh, it's um, uh, there's a funny thing about some embedded uh, CPUs. I I'm not sure. Maybe ARM also does this. Oh, basically, you can write at address zero there because they have uh, some system handler table or something at zero. Right. And so you can go there. You can you can reference a null pointer and write there. It's it's fine. <laughs> Right, right, right. Whereas a a compiler author would say, someone knowing C++ says, wait a minute, the literal pointer of zero isn't necessarily the actual <laughs> numeric value of zero, right? The compiler is allowed to substitute that with whatever unique value is, you know, cannot be returned from malloc or whatever the rule is. Um, Peter in the, in the chat room is saying, uh, long, it's capital, all caps, L-O-N-G. In the Windows code, I've seen four bytes. Some people might assume lowercase L-O-N-G, in other words, the standard long, would be uh, typically 8B. Um, and so that's what he's talking about. Is you know, It's an assumption that's made if you know what your operating system is and you make these kinds of assumptions. Mm-hmm. Um, I've actually... Yeah, the point there is uh, don't assume that you can cast a lowercase long into an uppercase long in Windows. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've actually, you know, I looked at my own code once when I realized um, 
that I was I was writing code as making as few assumptions as possible that I always do. That's how I write C++. I don't make assumptions about Indianness. I don't make assumptions about length. I don't make assumptions about anything like that at all. And I was looking at this code and I realized, you know, this is Mac code. It has to be Mac code. Look, I'm making Mac calls right here. And yet I'm still making all these kinds of, uh, <laughs> you know, staying away from all these assumptions. And yet, as Apple has over time transitioned their code from uh, 68,000 to PowerPC to Intel, these kinds of things paid off. Other people were, you know, scrambling to fix all these things because mm-hmm. they assumed, well, this is a 68,000 machine. It's running on a Mac. It's always going to be a 68,000 machine. <laughs> Whereas I was like, I don't know what it's running on. All I know is this is C++ code. And so this is how it gets written. Um, this kinds of things can pay off. But uh, but anyway, getting back to what you're saying is object or, or operating system people, they they know these tricks and they and you know from performance point of view at the low level uh this makes sense uh stick a pointer in here treat it like an int put it in a structure of ints put it in an array do whatever you need to do um and then know that it's uh know that you can turn around and put it in a pointer because that's the nature of the processor that you're running on um it's only language purists that that insist that well the language rule didn't say you can make that you can just, you know, arbitrarily put a pointer into an int and then expect it to work again. So, um, so getting back to the static analyzer, the static analyzer is probably following the C language or C++ language standard. Yes. And telling you, this is the way the compiler is seeing your code. And so this is likely to be dangerous, even though you know, well, on the code that I'm working on, it's not. Well, actually, yes and no. Uh it does follow the standard, and it um, it knows what can be dangerous and what uh, is safe, but it knows about different uh, platforms also. So uh, we support like PC, uh, we support Windows and uh, well, Windows, Linux, and Mac OS, and in Windows and in, in Linux, some types have different size. Uh, so we take this into account, and we also support some embedded uh, compilers and uh, ARM and a couple of other embedded uh, CPUs. Uh, so there, some rules are different a little bit. So we take this into account. In general, yes, it's uh, we just follow the language standard. So uh, Robert actually says in the chat room, he says that's why Linus only allows C, but I don't think that's uh, I I don't think that's the situation because the truth is the C compiler is allowed to make optimizations as well. Uh, there is a C standard. It's it's not as long, involved, and complicated as the C standard, but it also makes the same kinds of situations. I think Linus uh, hates C for a completely different oh, yeah. set of reasons. <laughs> Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I heard that C++ performance-wise uh, sometimes now is faster than C used to be, and it uh, com- C++ compilers can produce uh, smaller binaries. Uh, so for embedded people... Uh, well, it's certainly true, particularly if you're doing uh, the kind of... Uh meta programming where you're 
uh, doing type inspections and things like that, or type introspections and things like that. Uh, the potential is there, but again, I think that depends a lot on the specifics of exactly what you're working on. Um, but uh, getting back to getting back to static analysis. So here's the question I have for you. I told you what my company did. We, you know, we spent a lot of money. We bought this thing, um, ran it, generated a report that I actually did spend some time looking at. Found some interesting things. Thought that was cool, but then got back to doing production the way we always did, and it kind of got ignored. And so it was this huge boondog. How how should a comp how should a company use this? In other words, you know, should it can, can you make it part of a continuous build process? Can you? I know that I think one of the things about this system, and I don't know that we used it very well because we didn't run it multiple times. But I think you could go in and you could create a file where you'd say. I've already investigated this. Don't tell me about this again. And actually tie it to the particular code that it's analyzing. And I assume if you rewrote the function, it has to still try to figure out that, oh, this was this thing, even though it's not a perfect match. How does that work? Um, there is, yes, there is a special file uh, which stores um, what warnings you don't want to see. Uh, if you... Not based on the kind of warning, but based on where it was in the code. Uh, yes, uh, this specific warning. Yes. Not the type, yes, on this line. Right. Uh, and it stores hash of that line. Um, so it, it stores data about the line itself, and not just the line number. So if the line goes up and down in your code, right. uh, it will still uh, suppress the warning. Okay. Uh, if you change this line, it will. If it finds anything there, it will again uh, tell you that you're wrong. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. If you don't change the code uh, and you said, "Okay, I, I don't want to know about this uh, anymore," uh, you you won't hear about it again. Uh, usually, what we suggest is you just suppress either most of the warnings or at least. Uh, low level um low certain certainty level warnings right right and you look at the high level ones if you find something interesting there you fix it uh if you find false positives you you just uh suppress them also and then now one of the things that i that i did was as i was reading this i would realize oh i can see why this looks suspicious I actually rewrote some code to make the false positives go away. Is that useful use of time, or is that don't do that? Don't do that. No, no, don't do well, that. Just, uh, just mark them as false positives, uh, and let maybe the vendor know that okay, so there's a piece of code like that. There was a false positive. If you're writing a library, especially a header-only library. Like, uh, mm -hmm. you know, unit test framework, for example. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, <laughs> oh, I think I catch what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you have to make sure that it's not going to give false positives in other people's code. So I've often had to rewrite code uh, into a way that I don't like at all, actually, just to get rid of false positives. And there are some cases where you can't because one analyzer will give a false positive one way. And then you fix it, so that goes away, and that then gives you a false positive with a different analyzer, and you can't control what other people are using. So it does get complicated. <laughs> the brilliant situation there is when you have this if statement, where you say, if this, <laughs> return here, else, return here. And then you get 
and you get one compiler that complains that there is no return mm-hmm. for the uh, yeah. for the function because you're returning within. So you add a return at the bottom. Say, okay, I don't care. Fine, it'll never get executed. I'll add the return. <laughs> but of course, now another compiler is saying, hey, there's a return that is never mm-hmm. executed. Oh yeah. Uh, you can't make the compilers happier. Um, I have a story about that. Yeah. Um, I was doing some legacy code. It's like an ancient legacy from the old times. I was doing some refactoring that, and I oh, I, I look at it at the class and see okay, there's a virtual function here. I know it's virtual. Let me put uh, override next to it. Okay, it's good. Um, Microsoft compiler compiles it, uh, GC compiles it, and Clang goes, oh, it's inconsistency. You have override here, but you don't have it here, here, and here. Oh. In the same class. <laughs> wow. Okay. So both compilers, they also do that. That's interesting. That's interesting. It's, a, it's trying to be a style checker for you and say, hey, do we do overrides or do we not? Let's make up our mind. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is why we can't have nice things, right? Like, come on. Come on. Be consistent, dude. Stop it. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so um, so if I so if I'm installing the the uh, static analyzer, obviously the first step is it's only go the most certain bugs because this is brand new code, and I'm going to go insane if I just say, "Oh, I want to catch all the bugs." No, because mm-hmm. I'm going to get tons of false positives, and my eyes will bleed, and I will hate it, and I'll never use it again. So instead, start at the lowest possible level, or the, the highest certainty. Uh, highest certainty, yes. Right? Right. Okay. And you can skip uh, like lower levels entirely in most cases, especially if your project is kind of old and well-tested. You know? Uh, sure. If, if it's... Uh, project with history you will probably get a lot of garbage uh, because you won't get a lot of uh, good stuff on it on, on its code when you check it first okay so yeah you, you just suppress everything you don't like mm-hmm. and then you uh, start running it regularly so would you recommend is there a, a tool or a way to say hey this is uh, I'm, I'm working on a new function. I've got, I've got, I've added some new CPP files that were never there before. Can I say, you know, be paranoid as heck about these, whereas everything else, you know, some of it's not even mine. If you found a, you know, if it was bleeding from ulcers, I still wouldn't care because it's not my code, right? So can you can you somehow say this this file is, you know? Is new and therefore suspect, whereas ignore these others. Do you, can you do it on a file by file basis? Uh, well, it will be paranoid about any new file, of course, because it doesn't know anything about it. It doesn't have because any you won't use. have added anything to the to the false positive yeah. list. Okay. And uh, if you don't care about some particular file, you just add it to exclusions, and it's it's gone. I see. I see. Okay. Um, all right. So. Uh, so I install new stuff, install it on a new project, and I get really paranoid, and I, I only do the highest certainty stuff, and I start to investigate bugs, and 
with any luck, I'm actually eliminating some problems. I'm looking at it says, this isn't going to happen often. Otherwise, we would already found it in testing. Mm -hmm. But it will still happen sometimes. It may be unusual. And maybe it caused me to take a look at the code and say, oh, this is just kind of buggy code. Maybe it needs to be rewritten and maybe it can be faster. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know what? It didn't need to be called at all. Let's just comment that out. Let's get rid of this. Okay, so we do this. All right. Now, um, so... Is there a way that I can incorporate this in my continuous build? How do I, how do I best leverage the fact that, um, you know, every night we build the whole thing and I could generate a bunch of reports? How do I make use out of that? Well, uh, to integrate it, it's kind of easy because you just put it in your pipeline and make it run as a build step. Right. And for, uh, for reports, well, first you can do it incremental. So. If you are, uh, you can make it check only something that changed in your code, actually, not everything. So, in other words, it remembers the previous report run and compares reports. Yes, it, it can do that. So, I'm only seeing reports that didn't exist yesterday. So, this is a change I made today. Okay, so it's uh, good. So, then... Um, it runs every day in your CI. Okay. Uh, if you get something new, so it, it doesn't bother you with stuff you've already fixed or suppressed or said otherwise that you're not interested. Right. If it finds something new, it can notify you, like uh, for any new commit in your uh, code base, it can notify you that, okay, uh, this guy made a change that uh, generated this warning in this file, this line. Mm -hmm. uh, and you can do it like that. You don't actually have to see it through logs um, if, if you put it in, in the pipeline because it can notify you about new, um, new warnings and who, who's responsible for that piece of code. And then you can decide, okay, it's a bug, we, we're going to fix it, or you can just suppress it if it's false positive. But if you're going to suppress it, please let us know. <laughs> <laughs> because if it's a false positive, uh, we want to know because we are kind of serious about false positives. We don't don't like them. Right. So how do I let you know? I actually have to send you my code. My employer might not like that. <laughs> uh, we usually, we ask, we will ask you for uh, a minimal example where it can uh, be re reproduced. I see. Uh, maybe not the entire, mm, not the entire file, uh, but uh, a tiny piece of code where a warning occurs, mm -hmm. maybe uh, like a general pattern. Uh, if if you can send us just a piece of your code, uh, which is not uh, like uh, knee deep in macros or something, so mm -hmm. if it's uh, readable, um, uh, that's my kind of my favorite game is to uh, find a line of code where a user had some false positive and make an example uh, from it where I can reproduce it and then fix it. Um, in most cases, it works. Sometimes it doesn't, um, especially if you have something unobvious there. 
So usually, yes, you, maybe you can take a line from your code where you got a, a warning and maybe put some declarations, like, you know, mock declarations of classes involved in it or something right. like that. Right, right, right. Uh, it doesn't really actually have to compile successfully. It just needs to be parsable. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so one of the things, and we were talking about this earlier, that, that uh, the PBS Studio does is take a look at open source projects run the static analyzer on that, publish the results. And um, uh, what have you learned from that? I mean, you you spend a lot of time looking at the kind of code people write in the real world, right? I mean, that's the analyzer is not working about, worried about theoretical example code. It's, it's worried about what real world people are writing. Mm-hmm. What have you learned about how, I mean, you know, do you now think I never want to see another programmer again? They're all complete and total idiots. <laughs> Uh, no, I looked at my code I wrote like a few years ago and I went like this. Oh my God, what an idiot. Yeah, I became paranoid about what I write. So I... So t- talk to me about that. How do you, how has working at, working on a static analyzer changed how you write code? Um, uh I guess I became more careful. I, I would say, I would say it like this: I try to copy paste less. <laughs> I double check stuff. <laughs> um, so you literally do copy. You, you think no, it's the same thing, but I'm just going to write it by hand anyway. I'm going to retype it, even though I could copy and paste it, but it's just less risky. You do that? Uh, I usually I when I copy paste the line, I look at it at least twice. After that, okay. Copy paste, look, look. Yeah, and uh, I don't copy paste uh, like blocks of code usually. <laughs> so it's um, I've had my share of stupid errors with that. Um, what else? Um, recently, we started doing refactoring, and we decided to put all pointer checking logic uh, logic from our classes. Um, well from the calling code which uses classes and may come across pointers to some um, some classes uh, we decided to put this into constructors and make sure that uh, the class is constructed correctly and return references I'm, I'm talking about the syntax tree we have uh, so it's a big deal because mm-hmm. um, the syntax tree you can you can traverse it and it typically gives you pointers to nodes mm-hmm. uh, because it stores uh, it's, it's like a tree-like structure you, mm-hmm. everyone knows how it looks um, uh, now we return uh, references in many cases from methods uh, say for example if you have an expression like a plus b uh, a and b will be returned as references and the class itself will check uh, if it's constructed incorrectly from the parser and it will explode if it's constructed incorrectly. Uh, so that's the approach we decided to take because if I was paid a dollar every time a null pointer reference occurred in my code or in some someone else's code, I would be rich. <laughs> Billion dollar mistake, um, isn't it? <clears throat> uh, yeah, literally, yeah, right, right, right. 
Um, so, uh, so what are you saying? You, you're using more of, um, is that RAII? I mean, in other words, you're putting more logic in the constructor. Yes. Guaranteeing that it will be, uh, that it will be carried out. Yes. Oh. And if it's not, then it fails. Yes. Uh, fails spectacularly, either by throwing or whatever it does. It makes your code safer. Yeah. Well, um, I think it's the best way I can put it. Uh, so it's called correct it's... by construction. Yes. <laughs> um, makes your code safer. It makes you use more. By the way, it makes you use more standard library um, algorithms and uh, containers instead of trying to do something by hand. So. Uh, because when you do something by hand, you have uh, more potential to mistake. Uh, if you use something standard, you, you're probably fine. Right. Unless there's a bug there, but that's a different story, right? Um, Somehow, uh, Marshall Cloud and STL seem to write less bugs than I do. I don't know why that is. But... <laughs> <laughs> you sort of preempted a question I was going to uh, make, actually, okay. which is... Uh, how yeah. much is using you know, the type system more using these correct by construction techniques? Uh, that that sort of approach to coding in general, the contracts as well. How well can the static analyzers, including PVS Studio, follow that? Uh, contracts. Well, that was just one example, but any anything where you know you, you've checked something, uh, say oh, in okay. a constructor, you know as the programmer now that you know anywhere else mm -hmm. you, you can make assumptions about. Uh, certain values like it's not null or something like that can the static analyzer follow that logic through so at the point of use it knows this can never be null we don't need to check it here okay um it can uh usually but not in like every conceivable case uh but if you if you decide to dereference an internal pointer and it was checked previously somewhere in the constructor, for example, um, it usually knows that, uh, oh, okay, that's okay, that's not null. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's... Um, um, when you start talking about analyzing code between different functions, it becomes, sometimes it becomes messy because uh, you have to carry around a lot of information and some of that you may not have at some point. So it, it may be difficult, but uh, in general, yes, it, it can uh, track that, okay, this thing is good, uh, this thing is probably not. So what do you mean by, okay, so what you're saying is you can know if I, if I pass a value, I pass a pointer value, you know that I already checked in the previous code that it was not null. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so you can be confident in analyzing the called function that this this there's no path where in other words you may discover a path where if the pointer was null that's a problem but you know it's not a problem because it was checked before it was called yes yes but you because this could be a situation of things being in another translation unit you may not realize that that's happened you may not realize if it's in, well, if it's in different translation units, you won't realize it. Right, right. Um, but that's still potentially something to look at because you, it may be that the person writing the code assumed that the 
that the that the pointer is never known. But you would like to know that. Yeah. You, you're, the analyzer is telling you it better not be. And maybe you want to think about that. Maybe you just want to put it in a contract or something like that. Yeah. If it, if it's if it's always not now, why why is it point right? <laughs> Good question. Why is it why is it not a reference? Which <laughs> <laughs> question? Yeah, 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 yeah. Back um, to the billion dollar mistake. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, yeah, Robert. Robert is saying you need standard op- standard optional to counter null pointer. Um, so he's saying is that that it if you're using references, you may still have to deal with the situation where it could be null. And so I guess that's why he's saying you could use you could use optional. Um, but if you're using optional, you 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 know there's a t- there's a explicit test to test it, right? Well, you know, if I use an optional, I can still write an arrow and do something with it. <laughs> so it's not uh, it's not like foolproof. I think his, his point is if you, if you go all the way and eliminate raw pointers from your code, always wrap them in something which is going to check for nullability. This thing can never be null. Well, then make it optional, ah. and then you get back that nullability. Only in the places where you actually need it. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So, um, are, are you, is, the, is there a challenge to keeping up with the new standard as it you know comes out every three years? Particularly when, with things like contracts specifically, this is something that's going to change the way you're going to analyze code because of... Um, because the the code is guaranteeing certain, or at least implying certain things about the about the nature of the parameters passed in. Uh, yeah, you know when contracts didn't um, get into the new standard, we were like, why? <laughs> uh, yeah, because we really wanted them. Because the contracts, if your code had them, it would have put a lot of weight out of our shoulders so uh, we could just look at contracts and say okay so this function never returns null pointers so it's safe like always or something like that so um, yeah contracts would have been great for us actually Um, about the standards it's kind of challenging but it's not that challenge challenging as like uh, some people may imagine um, we can do new features pretty quickly at least we won't uh, we won't get scared of them yeah like recently we did uh, concepts uh, yeah so now we understand them at the parcel level. Mm-hmm. So the analyzer doesn't do anything about, uh, about them at the moment, but uh, it understands what uh, what's written there. Because when we first looked at concepts, we started crashing. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you can't parse it, yeah, it's going to happen. Um, and I assume that nothing that happens on the library side is interesting at all. On the library side, well, usually no. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Uh, it's uh, it's written really well uh, and like the 
STL, if we talk about STL. Mm -hmm. Other libraries, it's a different story, okay? So <laughs> you can still find things there. Um, STL is uh, good. Uh, we don't have a lot of issues with it. Right. So um, it, it, uh, what I was going to ask you is, is there anyone, do, is there anyone on your team that, that goes to standards meetings? Do you have any representation at all? No. Uh, you have an interesting tool that depends on the standard, and you might have interesting observations that people in the standards committee would appreciate. Uh, no. What real code looks like? We didn't. Um, we didn't manage to do that uh, yet. Uh, but uh, we go on conferences a lot, and there you can meet people from the committee. Right. And you can discuss uh, stuff with, with them. It's kind of interesting what they say sometimes because they are on the front lines, so they know stuff a lot better than we do. And really, yeah, I would assume that you would have insights that they wouldn't have because you you see a lot more real world code. You know, it's one of the things that I think Bjarne is quoted as saying: nobody knows what the typical programmer knows or the typical C plus plus programmer knows. <laughs> and there's a certain truth to that: is you know, if you happen to be in a particular industry. You overrepresent that industry in your mind. You might know, well, there are people who do different kinds of code than we do, but you, who, who, how important can they possibly be? Because they're not, I don't see them every day. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that's true. We don't really know. There's 5 million C++ programmers. How many of them, you know, what do they know? How do they think about C++? <laughs> yes. How many of them even know there's a standards committee? Um, I think that's kind of interesting that literally... A lot of them have no idea, you know, well, all they know is I have this compiler. If it works in the compiler, then that means it's part of the language. And if it doesn't, then it's not. Undefined, undefined behavior. Now it compiles fine on my machine, right? That's right. That's right. Or it doesn't compile, in which case <laughs> that's, that's what the standard says, right? You want to know, you want to know how many bytes there are in it. You just type up size of int and then it tells you how many bytes and that's how many bytes there are <laughs> that's what an int is um oh my goodness i just recalled another story um i've seen a forum post someday that a guy was complaining oh the new version of clan is broken it complains about my code it generates something weird it crashes all over the place it like an old version of gc doesn't do that and then uh, people got him into showing his code, and turned out that he had a signed integer overflow there. He had what? Uh, signed integer overflow. I see. I see. I see. So uh, he he had a UB. <laughs> uh, and so GCC was letting him get away with it. Yeah. 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 yeah I uh, I remember. Um, let's see. Guess I shouldn't say the author name. There is a a. Very popular C++. Not so much. This was this was before, this was in the old days, before modern C++. But it was actually shipping out there. And it said, you know, that int was 16 bits and that long was 32. And that's just what it said. And it was like, <laughs> how can this get published? How can someone write a book and say this? And it was a book on C++. It wasn't like somebody was writing a book on how to write games or something like that. And they just said, no, no, no. It was a book on C++. And it said, you know, into 16 bits, long as 32 bits, and that's just that's just what those things mean. Oh, and it's like, talking that's of good longs, one. we are running a bit long. Oh, we, we should oh, probably okay. start wrapping up. <laughs> we should start. Sounds like up. we have plenty yeah. of material for uh, a second show sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So Yuri, we didn't mean to catch you off. Go ahead and finish your story. Um, uh, what do you think? How many bits are there in a byte? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, uh, yeah. Um, today's architecture, it's almost universally eight, but it used to be there were machines with nine bit bytes and 10 bit bytes. It's, uh, uh, yeah, I, I heard about all kinds of bitness uh, per byte. <laughs> so, uh -huh. um, I don't believe any the predefined sizes anymore. Octa. Octa. <laughs> well, I, yeah, yeah, it's often called the octet to get around that. It's like, no, no, this is what we mean. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that anybody's making any hardware that isn't 8-bit bytes in uh, mm -hmm. a long time, right? I mean, it's it, it took us a while to figure it out, but once we figured it out, um, well, it's partly because we're so English-centric, right? Uh, programmers tended to be English speakers and characters nicely fit in 8-bits and, uh, well, characters nicely fit in 7-bits, but... <laughs> You know, what programmer is, you know, people are trying to figure out the guy who, uh, I don't know, this is probably much too much aside, but I was just thinking about this the other day that um, there's uh, in the Bitcoin, which is, by the way, the Bitcoin protocol is is written in C++. Mm -hmm. um, and so you would think, well, maybe the guy that created this Bitcoin protocol, this anonymous person, uh, maybe he was a programmer, except that uh, the Bitcoin Uh, miners' fee every uh, every uh, every few years it it halves, and so it's currently at like twelve and a half dollars, and it's going to go because it initially started at fifty, mm -hmm. and that means he's not a programmer because no programmer would have started <laughs> at fifty. They would have started at you know sixty four, right? Yeah, sixty four. Right? Uh, so you know he's not a programmer. Whoever he is, <laughs> he knew enough to write code, but he's not a programmer. He wouldn't have started the the, the mining fee at fifty. That's, uh, that's what yes, we know. that's uh, our clue. <laughs> I bet he counts from one. That's probably yeah. What what is that? Counts from one. All right. So um, we uh, we should probably, as Phil says, we should probably wind this up. It's been a lot of fun, and um, I I love the. I love thinking about static analyzers and the and the 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 problem of being able to analyze code and communicate communicate what you're getting without those false positives. It's very interesting. Um, this is the part in the show where we uh, invite our guests to join us in wishing everyone safe coding, and particularly with your line of work, I know that you mean that very sincerely. So um, to everyone, we say, "Yeah, would you gonna say something?" Um, I yes, I have to say it. Otherwise, I will be killed tomorrow. Uh oh. Um, if anyone wants to try PVS Studio, you can use the link in the uh, show mm -hmm. notes. Uh, We're going to put it in the show notes? Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Yes. And you get a trial for a month instead of a week standard. Okay. So. Okay. Very good. Right. I'm done with it. Now I <laughs> won't get killed. So. <laughs> we should have put that at the top of the show all right so uh so to everyone now we say safe coding